I was that kid who would show up at the airport and like stick my face on the wind on the, the mesh, the wire mesh, and just kind of dream and go, geez, I'd love to go on one of those planes. Okay. And so one day this guy came up to me and he goes, hey, do you want to go on a flight? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> so I ran down to the hotel of the fence and ran around and um, just went to the plane with this random guy. With a, with a really? yeah, sounds, with a, sounds very dangerous getting onto a random plane with some stranger. <laughs> exactly. And I was nine and I was like, this is my dream come true. I get to fly a plane. Welcome to Yaro's podcast, where you'll discover the stories behind world-class performers, business builders, and enlightened leaders. Do you suffer from email addiction? Yeah, I have, and I'm a recovering email addict. Thankfully, I took a step that broke me free from the email trap. Most business owners spend a lot of time during their working day inside their inbox, and it may be even bleeding into your home life where you spend hours at night or first thing in the morning attempting to clear that email inbox. Now, it's not surprising because email is where often the most important messages come. We get messages from our clients, our potential customers, from our contractors, our employees, possibly friends and family, everything going on with our lives and our businesses. So the idea of outsourcing or handing over that email inbox to someone else is not something you may have considered before. But I want to tell you, it is by far the most powerful productivity step you can take is to hire someone to handle your email for you. It frees you up so you have more time to do whatever you'd like, whether it's growth activities in your business, creating products, working on marketing campaigns and relationships with other people, or maybe just spending more time with your friends and your family or working on your own health, exercising, taking holidays and so forth. When you're glued to your email inbox, it keeps you away from all those activities. Now, the strange thing is we're usually very comfortable outsourcing all kinds of other aspects of our business. But for some reason, email is one of the last things or perhaps something you never have considered outsourcing to someone else. Well, I have some exciting news. I actually have a company called InboxDone.com. You may have heard of it. We provide a human being to take over your email. I've actually had someone handle my own email inboxes for over 12 years now. So I took the step to break free many, many years ago, and I haven't gone back. I now could never go back to doing my own email. It would be very difficult. And I'd like you to experience the same sense of freedom. So if you're curious on how exactly someone could take over your email and, and how the process works and how you can come to trust someone to handle that all-important inbox, I recommend you head over to inboxdone.com and check out my company. There's a real opportunity here for you to potentially change your life and certainly change your business for the better. Create some freedom, some time by handing over that inbox to someone who should really spend more time there than you do because that's their job and it's not your job. Inboxdone.com. Check it out. Hi, this is Yarrow and welcome to a podcast episode that will be a little bit different or maybe not from my usual episodes. I'll be honest with you, this is a little bit of a a personal curiosity for me as well to interview my guest today because I am constantly blown away by everything he puts on social media because uh, my guest never is in the same place week by week. He is constantly on the move, on planes, going to places. And that's like, as far as I can tell, is in his entire existence, <laughs> at least in terms of the, the time frame. I've known this guest who I should probably introduce to you right now so we can find out more about how he can travel forever. Uh, it's Kerwin McKenzie. Hello, Kerwin. Hey, Yara. How you doing, man? <laughs> I'm good. So we met 
in person for the first time way, way, I can't remember how many years ago now, it must have been like five, five, six years ago in Melbourne, uh, not Melbourne, it was Gold Coast, wasn't it? For Darren Rouse's Pro Blogger conference. Exactly. Now, I don't think I was aware of you up until that point. And then since then, I followed you because your story was just so interesting. I hadn't come across someone like yourself who literally doesn't seem to go home. Yet, ironically, you're actually at home right now as I, I talk to you. But it's, <laughs> it's a rare, a rare occurrence. I want to kind of answer the question here for the audience as we kind of dive back into your story of how you can travel perpetually. Obviously, people are going to wonder, you know, do you have some kind of laptop lifestyle income stream or business? Or did you win the lotto? Or did you do you have some kind of inheritance that you're slowly eating away? Because literally, if you follow Kerwin, he will be on planes or Briefly, I feel like you're more on planes than you actually are in the places you go to with the planes sometimes, Kerwin. So before we dive into your history, can you maybe just summarize what actually is your life like right now and why have you chosen this life? Oh, wow. Jeez. Well, Yara, first I want to say thank you for having me on. Uh, I'm a big fan of Yara. I took Yara's blogging course, I think when you actually started. I'm probably, I was probably in your first class, I think. Oh, wow. Or because I think I was there when Leslie was there. Yep. So, yeah, that was probably the, one of the first class. And Yara was kind of the guy who I go, really, you can do this blogging thing and it works. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm an aviation geek, and um, I think probably can go back to 2011 because that's kind of when I I was with a, with a an airline for about 14 and a half years, and I've worked in the industry since 1994. And in 2011, my airline merged with another one. And it was kind of gave me an opportunity to say, hey, you can retire, quote unquote, and you can take your flight benefits because of the number of years you had and my age. So I thought about it and said, yeah, I'm going to do that. I don't know what I'm going to do yet, but I'll take the flight benefits and go with them. And I always had a blog. Passrider.com is the, I think that's the second blog. The first blog is Cruising Altitude. And uh, that was way, Cruising Altitude was way back from their blog spot days. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it was way from the beginning. And um, I even used to use, what was that thing that page, page something that Microsoft had? Uh, PageMaker? Is that the? PageMaker? I think so. But I used to use one of those Microsoft products from way back when. And it used to like put a whole bunch of code in, in, the, in the pages and I'd have to like take out all the extra oh, code. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> so I started blogging. I think I bought my first domain in probably 98, I think is how old Cruising Altitude is. But Password is kind of the main one because when I used to be at work, people would come to my desk. I actually had a line around the corner and my boss thought I would never do any work. But then I always did the work that she gave me. But people would always come by me and ask, well, how do I do this? When I go to this destination, what do I do? And I was always a guy that would do weekend trips. I basically fly around the world in a weekend, which you actually can do. Even <laughs> if you don't have an airline job. <laughs> but if you fly around... In a weekend, you'd be on the plane for 24 hours, right? So, <laughs> Well, here's a, good, a, a quick example. You can fly from, say, Los Angeles to Hong Kong, and you arrive two days later. So if even a Friday night, you'll get there Sunday morning. And then you have all day to shopping Hong Kong, um, see the sights, and then you come back on the later flight, and that will actually take you back to LA. It leaves like about, I think, 
four or five o'clock in the afternoon or something like that. But you got there at 7 a.m. So you can have a pretty, pretty full day. And then you get back. The, the beautiful thing about a dateline is you'll get back to L.A. like about Sunday. Actually get back the same day because of the dateline. It's really odd. And then you take the red eye flight from Los Angeles back to, say, Houston. And you're back here for work Monday morning. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like you've done this possibly before, that, that exact flight path. Have you done that? I've done that before, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I, you know, so I always had an information in there. What I thought was, you know, I could make, I could have a go at making it a business in the travel sphere. And in travel, it is extremely difficult to get people to pay for travel information. So my friends would call me up. They'll go, let me pick your brain. I want to go to London. What do I do? And I'd give them all my information. And then that's it. All the information is gone. They're gone. They're happy. They've saved money. They've done a good thing. But if you ever ask someone to pay you for travel information, they're going to be like, no, not going to do it. You know, even five bucks or ten bucks or something like that. However, though, they will go and pay like a five hundred dollar per night room in Las Vegas, and they'll have big meals and stuff like that. But they won't really pay for that information because mm-hmm. they don't see the value proposition. So, in the travel business, you have to think of earning income slightly different from the normal ways. When I started, I guess, go full time in twenty eleven, I pretty much made no money at all which was pretty bad. <laughs> so I had gotten a severance from the company. So um, I had that to live on for a little bit. And then I started to, I made uh, money off the website. Well, there was, there was some advertising from Google AdSense, actually, because I think Google AdSense was one of the lowest hanging fruit. And I think I probably learned that from um, from Yara's course. <laughs> or, or Darren, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, probably, yeah. Yeah. He was big on AdSense. But and, and it worked. You know, you got some stuff from AdSense. But then, you know, in the later days, some other companies came around that Monumetrics, which is one company that you can get advertising dollars from. And there's a new one that I'm that I, I started with about a year ago called Mediavine. And the idea is that the more traffic you have to your website, you know, the, the more you get paid for the ad. It's a paper paper click or paper view is is probably what it does. So most of my income today is actually from uh, advertising. Okay, uh, interesting. Yeah, and there is, I've written a book. Actually, I've written two books. One I gave away as my email, from my email list. And that was a book. And it's the only book that exists that tells you how to be, basically how to be an airline employee. And the second book I wrote and published, I want to take about maybe six years or so to, to finish, but it was published last year. And that one is about 89 things to do as an airline employee before you quit. And it basically just tells it chronic. I, when I started writing, I go, "Well, these this is my travels. These are all the places I've visited, and uh, well, not all, but most of the places I've visited, and kind of how to get this." So it kind of tells you basically a lot of airline employers have all these benefits, but they don't know how to use it or what to do with it. So I would do stuff like, "Hey, did you know you can actually go to London for the weekend?" And they're like, "Really? Well, how do you do that?" So then I tell them how to do that. You know, or everyone wants to go to Europe from the U.S., but you can go to South America because South America is really good. The time zone is not as drastic as Europe. The flight time is actually about the same because of where we are in the in the, in the U.S. So it's kind of just telling people what is out there for your flight benefits. Mm. This is a great point. Then I can 
ask you to go back in time because you obviously developed this knowledge first as an employee of an airline. I do want to make this relevant for the listeners too, because obviously most of them are not going to be employees of <laughs> airlines, but I have got a lot of questions for you regarding how you travel now, but let's, let's answer those by bringing us up to date by going back in time. Are you born and raised in Houston? No, I'm actually originally from Jamaica. So, um, yeah, and I've, God, I've lived in the U.S. since late 80s. Yeah, and I've lived all over. I've lived in um, Florida, New York, Washington, D.C., Indianapolis, and uh, Houston. <laughs> that's, that's probably not surprising. But did you, so if we even go back to Jamaica, were you, you know, this interest in aviation, was that there back then? Or is this something that came after you, you know, became an adult? Oh, no, that was always there. Um, I actually took my first flight when I was nine. I was that kid who would show up at the airport and like stick my face on the wind, on the, um, the, the mesh, the wire, well, wire mesh, and just kind of dream and go, geez, I'd love to go on one of those planes. Right. And so one day this guy came up to me and he goes, hey, do you want to go on a flight? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> so I ran down to the hotel of the fence. And ran around and um, just went in the plane with this random guy. Over there. Really? <laughs> yeah, sounds, it, sounds very dangerous, a young boy getting onto a random plane with some stranger. <laughs> exactly. I was nine and I was like, this is my dream come true. I get to fly a plane. I think if my parents had known, I'd be uh, probably get to a nice spanking back. <laughs> wow. Okay. So it was like, <laughs> was it a, like a little prop plane or? Uh... Yeah. So the, the Cessna Skymaster, it has like a prop in the front and a prop in the back. It does like a counter-rotating thing, and that's what keeps it flying with a big wing in the middle. And so I went with this guy, and we flew down to the country area. And he like he flew around this field. Some guy ran out, and then he pushed something out of the window. And then we wrote, we flew over the over the runway. He you know flapped his well not flapped his wing, but I guess he signaled to the guy that everything was good. And then we left. Was that, was that so a, a drug deal or something? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I keep thinking about it. I'm like, oh my God, that must have been a drug deal back then. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, it's, it's good that you didn't become a dealer. That's, let's say that, Kermit. Oh, so. well, I was nine. I had no idea what was going on. I was just excited that I had a flight. But, but now that I think about it, I'm like, yeah, I think that was a drug deal. <laughs> okay, so that was your first taste. Did, did you, from that point on, say, I've got to work in the airline industry somehow? Or do I, I want to become a pilot? Or what were you thinking? So I was thinking I wanted to become a pilot, but it's really expensive to become a pilot. And I'm from a, a very poor family, so I know we couldn't afford that. So I thought, okay, great, then let me try to get into uh, something in aviation. And I wanted to, because I wanted to leave Jamaica and I wanted to go explore it, I, I always thought there was so much things about it because I grew up in the country. And where we lived in the country, there was always, these cars would come up every Saturday or actually during the weekend, they would turn and stop right by my grandmother's house. And then all these people would come out and they would go different places. And I kept thinking, well, where are these people going? What are they doing? I want to go and I want to know what they're doing. So when I got the opportunity to go to university, I went to Barbados for university. And because I know I went to Barbados is because they did meteorology and I wanted to leave the country. <laughs> so, so you saw meteorology as, as a way out more than anything else. Exactly, right. exactly. So I, I went to Barbados, did meteorology and realized I really love mathematics. And then from there, I went to the U.S. and I continued my education. I think I was more into the travel side of things when I was in school, because every time I would go home every summer, I would like 
taken an opportunity to go to the different Caribbean islands. So I've gone to a lot of Caribbean islands just from going to university. Because my first trip out of Jamaica was actually to Martinique. I did a French exchange studies. And on the way back, we stopped in Haiti. So at the moment, I think I'm up to 124 countries. Yeah, and the first one was Martinique. Okay, so that was your first uh, overseas visit. And I wanted to be a pilot, but couldn't afford it. So at the very first opportunity I got to work for an airline, I did that. And I took it back to university to do aeronautical science in um, Florida, Daytona Beach, Florida. And that was just so I could get back into aviation. And when I came out of school in 94, none of the airlines were hiring. So I had a master's degree in aeronautical science and there was nothing going on. And so I applied for a ramp job with uh, Delta in in Washington, D.C., and I got accepted. What's, what's a was, ramp job? So the ramp job, see those guys who like move your bags and push the airplane back? Mm-hmm. That was me. So with, you're, uh, you're with, a master's guy, but you were just guiding planes back and forth. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> and so when I first started, the guys, they never talked to me. The other rampers, they never spoke to me. They're like, you're a spy. You're from <laughs> corporate, and they've sent you here to spy on me. <laughs> And okay. so I was sitting in my little corner and nobody talked to me for like about a month or so. And uh, the only reason why they did is because they thought I was a spy. And I'm like, I'm not a spy. <laughs> and so the, the only guy that would talk to me is there was this guy who worked in the baggage room. And he used to work for Eastern Airlines, which is a really old airline. And I think he also worked for Pan Am. And I would talk to this guy every day and he would like just tell me about the industry. And I learned a lot about the industry from this guy. What in particular did you learn? Like, what's what? What do you need to know from that point on to sort of, I guess, rise up the hierarchy from from ramp boy to whatever comes next? I think for me, it was just kind of learning about the inside, the inside of the, I guess, kind of how what he saw, how the actual aviation industry works, like the stuff you don't see. So, for example, when when your bag comes in, well, how does it get from the plane to you? You know, what happens if you're connecting your bag from, say, an international flight to a domestic flight? All that stuff happens in the back end and nobody really sees that. And most people don't care. But I got a lot of insight. And then also how the how the other different airlines that merged together and kind of the perception. So in the airline industry, there's a hierarchy. The guy on the ramp is like the guy at the bottom, literally. And the, the pilot's at the top. So in between that is everybody else. And there is quite the quite the weirdness that goes on behind the scenes. So I kind of got that type of insight. And then a friend of mine who I went to college, and I was like, I hear this people say, you know, you know, you don't have to go to college, or if you go to college, it's going to cost a lot of money, and you don't have to go to college to be successful. Yeah, that works for some people, but others it doesn't work that way. So um, I actually got my, my first full-time airline job from my, my college buddy, he called me up because he was working for this other airline in Indianapolis. And he said, hey, we have a job opening. You're the guy for the job. You need to come in and interview for it. And so I did, and I got that job. What was the job? It was uh, revenue management. So revenue management is, that is how the airlines make money. So basically, on any particular flight, when somebody says, so you ever see these fares? They go, hey, it's $50 fare to go from, say, Houston to, Houston to LA on Southwest or something like that. The government said it has to be a certain percentage of your flight that's available before you can have that sale. But then from the revenue management standpoint, if you sell every seat for $50, you're going to lose money. So we have a scale and we have a, a system and we kind of figure out how much money we want to make in this flight and how many seats you want to sell in this flight. 
We also look at no-shows, so which is people who don't show up for their flights. And we have like a whole system that tells us on this particular flight, at this particular day, between these two destinations, 10% of the people usually don't show up. So you have to sell 10% more seats so you can actually leave with somewhat of a full airplane. Now, it's not an exact science, and every now and again, you have 10% of the people waiting without a seat. And then it actually costs you a little more, but it makes up for it because over time, you are making any money from the the flight Mm. anyway. I've always been curious about that. I've heard about it before, this whole idea that planes or airlines oversell capacity, and you just described why, because they know a certain percentage of people won't show up. In my entire life flying, though, I've never once had the experience where someone said, listen, you bought a ticket, but we actually don't have a seat for you. Is that something that happens every day? And, and why hasn't it happened to me then? If, if I just been lucky? or <laughs> um, Probably. Well, some airlines, they you probably don't fly during peak times. And probably some of the airlines you fly don't do overbooking. It's not a big thing as it used to be. It still happens. Because there's been a situation in the U.S. where the flight was overbooked and they took the sky off and he got beat up and they got ugly. But overbooking is still is still done. Typically, it'll happen in the like the Monday morning 9 a.m. flight between, say, Houston and New York or Houston and Los Angeles or Houston and Chicago, because all the business people want to get to work and they want to get to work on the first flight. The time zones help because if you get out on the first, on an early flight out of, say, Houston, you can get to L.A. before 9 o'clock. Or also the red-eye flights, you can get that. So it depends on the time of day that you fly. And you hear the agents say, hey, we're in an oversold situation. Would you like to volunteer? And if you volunteer and they select your seat, they usually offer you a free ticket or they offer you, you miles or points. And usually they'll, sometimes you get a free ticket, then they'll put you on another flight and in in first class or something, mm. if it's like the next day, you may end up stay. They may have to put you in a hotel, so it can be quite lucrative. So if you're not busy and you want to get to where you want to go, just always ask. Whenever whenever you you check in, just say, "Hey, you know, is this flight oversold?" And agents will go, "No, it's not." Uh, or they'll say, "Yep, it is." Would you like to volunteer? And they'll just put your name down. Mm. Some of the airlines are really sophisticated, so when you check in, they will ask you. If there's an overseer situation, would you like to be on the standby list? And I almost always say yes, because I'm never in a hurry to get anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> um, uh, I have so many more questions about your current travels, but let's stick to this timeline. So you, you're one of the guys who are looking at the numbers every day to try and make the revenue work for an airline. Is that right? It's like sitting in front of a computer, crunching numbers? Yes. Yeah, so we had, and back then... This was like the airline was using the system for the first time. And the guy who was doing it is actually the guy who created the system for Southwest Airlines. And I was at a conference the other day and he came up to me and I'd never met him face to face, but we talk all the time. And he saw that at the conference and he came over and said hello. And it was hilarious because he'd been telling everybody about me because I was one of the people who was working in the system. And I've been telling everyone about him. So finally we get to meet. But yeah, so everything is, is, a, is a pro as a computer program. So you go in and then what will happen is that, say, let's say, so how airline seats work, and that's why we have different fare levels. So let's say you were selling tickets for $50 and no one's buying. And we know no one's buying because we look at the numbers and we're not selling any seats. So then we say, okay, great. Well, why don't we try selling it for $45? 
And now all of a sudden, people are buying. So we know these people are buying. We sell a few tickets at $45, but then we do what's called closing off the bucket, which means that we move up to the next level. So we stopped selling $45 tickets, and now we're selling $50 tickets. And all of a sudden, people are like, it's closer to departure, so people are going to start buying those tickets because they really need to go. And if you notice, the closer you get to the departure date, the more expensive the tickets become. Mm-hmm. And so there's a computer that's managing that in the back end. And then as a uh, revenue management analyst, I ensure that we maximize the amount of money that we want to make on that particular flight. I imagine that's a role that's changed significantly as technology has changed. Yes. Yeah, because it's a lot It's a lot easier. I guess the systems nowadays, I think they'll actually do some most of that automatically. And you just kind of monitor it. You probably can set up alerts and things like that. I haven't done it in ages, but I'm pretty sure it's changed in that direction. So how long were you in that role and what did you do next? I hung out at ATA for about a year and a half. Yeah, I was in about 15 months. And so when I went to ATA, I always had the we need to travel thing going. And so there were people at that airline who never, they never, they'd never been anywhere. But they have all these flight benefits. So I'd say my first trip I took with them, I said, look, we're going to Las Vegas. And they're like, well, but where are we going to stay? I'm like, we're not going to stay anywhere. We're going to come right back. And they're like, well, how do you do that? So we jumped on an afternoon flight after work. We went to Las Vegas and we stayed out all night and we came back in the first flight the next morning. <laughs> and they were addicted. <laughs> when, when you say they, who, who, who you mean your fellow employees or? My fellow employees. They were, right. they were like, oh, I couldn't believe, I can't believe we would do that. I'm the guy who would always look at the schedules and figure out what to do. So then everyone was telling about overbooking flights, right? So we said, I said, let's go to LA. The flights are never full. We're going to be fine. We get to LA and that weekend, all the flights were oversold. And that was my market that I was taking care of. And some of our friends were annoyed at me. They're like, well, how could you? I'm like, well, it's never been full in the last 10 weeks. And so that's the thing with revenue management, you know, when something happens, and we don't even know why it was that particular weekend, but every flight was oversold by, so the airplane holds 218 people, and I had sold it up to, I think it was 300, because the people never showed up. And so we had to be like, I think we had to end up sending an extra airplane in to pick up the extra people that were there. So after ATA, I went to Continental. Again, another friend of mine called me up and said, hey, and I went to school with him. And he said, look, they're looking for people. You should come and interview. And so I did. And then I got the job. And I stayed here until 2011. Oh, wow. So that's the one you stayed with until they were basically offering volunteer retirement. Yeah. Yeah. Because they, they decided to merge. And the thing is, I would have stayed longer. But I started there when we did, when the internet was just in the fledging, it was 1996, and the only airline that had online booking was Alaska Airlines. And so this was a time we had a really good good VP, and he was very forward-thinking, and my job was actually competitive intelligence. But on my business card, I just put, I think it was just manager was on there. Because, <laughs> you know, no one would talk to you if you said, hey, I'm with competitive intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And, I know, right? So, but what happened was my job would, would be to look and see what everybody else is doing and see how we can use the technology that they are to do what we want to do. And one of the big things back there was it, it was the internet was such a non thing, was we actually had a meeting to decide if we were to put the the URL on our envelopes. Oh, well. 
And there were people who said no. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. When we decided to merge, it was kind of like, well, I don't want to redo that. I, I already built the website. I, I was the guy who did the, I, I'd write the requirements because I was always a customer guy, which is why now I'm so customer centric. So when people complain online that, hey, I had a bad experience, I always like to know, well, what happened? Because obviously, if a lot of people are having the same experience you were having the airlines with the other business. And I know it's sad when, like, when, when the airline loses your bag, it's a terrible thing because I've been there. But then I tell people, well, 85% of the time, they don't. And it sucks when you're within that 15%. <laughs> it's still pretty high, though. 15, like, I, let's, uh, let's answer that question. Why do they lose bags so frequently? So, uh, and, and so on cruisingaltitude.com, I have a whole bunch of posts about that. But typically what happens is, and that gentleman I was talking to when I worked for um, Delta up in D.C. So when you check your bag in, one of the things you always have to make sure that you have the tag that they're tagging is the right bag. Because sometimes what used to happen was two agents are standing next to each other. They're talking, talking, you're talking, and they tag the wrong bag because both of the paper things come off at the same time. And so sometimes they tag the wrong bag. Or what used to happen was the bag gets tagged to the wrong city. Or sometimes in your reservation, you have like three cities you're supposed to connect to three different airlines, but all the tags don't print out properly. The other thing too is misconnect. So you arrived at the airport late and there's not enough time to even get your bag on the first flight. Or you're at an airport and the flight is delayed or your flight is delayed arriving, but the other airline has, it is, it has to be a certain time for the connecting bags to come. Because each airport have a place where they put all the connecting bags and the other airlines come by there and pick up those connecting bags and take them over. So if they come over for the connecting bags and your bag hasn't arrived yet, they're not going to come back unless somebody comes out and says, hey, we have to get this bag on this flight and then they deliver it over. And sometimes the tags fall off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which... Which happens. <laughs> sounds like the most obvious answer, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Each airline have this place where they keep all the bags because they have to keep the bags that are lost for a certain time, and then they move them on to uh, a warehouse. Or a warehouse comes in and buys them, and then they resell the contents. But one of the things that people don't put their names on the inside of the bag. So when the tag fall off and they don't know where the bag is and they open the bag, there's nothing in there that can identify the person. Mm-hmm. And so they have these, if you go into these warehouses, they have just rows and rows and rows of all the bags that they are, can't get who the owners. Unnamed. Yeah, wow. Exactly. That's why you got to tag your bag with your own tag. Yes. <laughs> so Kerwin, I can tell all the way back from the very early days when you first started working for an airline, you came up with this simple no hotel fee travel hack where you fly in at night and then fly out. I think it'd be worth sharing the story you shared with me many years ago, how you were at a conference and I think there was no hotel room. So you, you flew instead. Can you just explain what you did then? Cause that's also available to the general public, right? You don't have to be, I'm not sure I would do this cause frankly, I'd rather, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe spend more in a hotel if, even if I could save money, but can you explain what you did? Yeah, sure. So so typically, this really works for red-eye flights. If you can figure out, so let's say you're in Las Vegas or Los Angeles, for example, and it's really expensive for the hotel, 
And you realize that beforehand. And nowadays, some of the last minute tickets are really cheap, so you can do it. So what you would do is you'd buy a round trip ticket to, say, New York. And you see a flight from, say, Las Vegas or – because the West Coast, you can go from anywhere in the West Coast um, to the East Coast. Well, what, what, so was your, what was your route for that story you um, shared with me? I was in Las Vegas, I think it was. And so I did Las Vegas to New York. And then when I got to New York, I have a club card, airport club card. And so I was able to take a shower. I had breakfast. Then I had a, ch- a quick change of clothes. And then I jumped on another flight and flew back to Las Vegas. And so I didn't have to do a hotel. <laughs> now, correct me if I'm wrong, but sleeping on a plane is not comfortable. So how does, how does this work? It's actually not too bad. I'm, you know, I'm six foot one, but I guess I've mastered the art of sleeping on a plane. Most airplanes, they have this little wing thing that you can put at your head. I hate neck pillows, but apparently everybody else does. And everybody else thinks that it's really cool to wear your neck pillow in the airport, which is really interesting to see. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> but I guess I've gotten accustomed to it. And most of the airline, when you do those red-eye flights, they usually have blankets. And sometimes the airplanes really do get cold. So I always have like a, a, a some kind of sweater or a sweatshirt or something like that with me because mm. it does get cold at nights. From time to time. Yeah, I remember hearing that story going, like, I'm not a super <laughs> fan of being on airplanes. I like the fact that they take me to interesting places, but the part <laughs> of being on the plane is always like, a, you know, a sort of slow, and I hate turbulence. <laughs> but I actually, back when I was a bit more fearful of flying, I would look at people like you and go, right now, Corinne is on an airplane. He'll be on one tomorrow. You know, this is <laughs> what he does. So you kind of gave me inspiration and confidence regarding flying. Can we go back then to, you probably have so many different travel hacks, but I'd like to talk before we talk more about that. Okay. When you got this opportunity to do volunteer retirement, I know you were given a sort of like a lifetime employee travel benefit going forward, right? Which meant you could take a certain number of flights so it was financially feasible to do what you do. But I'm sure it wasn't like a case of free flights forever on any airline. So let's, can we answer the obvious question? How can you be on a plane so much? Because I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but for the last four or five years I've followed you, I think 50 weeks out of 52 a year, you're flying somewhere. And, you know, you land in London and straight away you're, you're off to Singapore. You land in Singapore and straight away you're off to, you know, Sydney. It's like you never stay in a place for longer than a day or two either. So why do you live this life and how can you make it work financially? Oh, my God. Why do you love being on plane so much? I guess is it just your aviation geek side? You'd rather be in the air than be on the ground with the rest of us? Or? <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's the aviation geek side. I guess because I wanted to be a pilot, and this is the closest I get to be a pilot, I am very fascinated by aviation. The fact that you can fly across the Atlantic in you know, Houston to London in like eight and a half hours, and you're in a completely different place, and that airplane has been up there for eight and a half hours, and then it turns right to turns right around, it refuels, and it comes right back. I'm still fascinated by that. Every time I get on a plane and I take off, I feel like a little a little nine year old boy that took that first flight. But I think it's also because I like people. I probably should have done psychology. <laughs> but I do love people because they as humans, we like each other, but we kind of put up with each other just because we have to. Like like on a plane. I mean, you sit next to a perfect stranger most of the times, and sometimes they want to talk to you. Like I've been next to people who've told me their entire lifestyle or their life story, and there's others who don't want to say anything. 
But one thing I realize is that I think I think of aviation as a way of connecting the world. I know people talk about you know uh, carbon footprint and things like that, but I say to them that a lot of things that you don't think of, like, like mail, mail is goes. It used to be to have air mail way back then, but now it's just mail because a lot of mail, a lot of your mail goes by air. So there's no need to put air mail on the thing anymore. But Mail connects the world, and if it wasn't for aviation, there would not be any mail. Aviation actually started uh, as cargo, and then they decided, well, let's take humans, and that's where all the problems began. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> so when when I fly on my travel travel benefits, it's just it's it's purely for um, leisure. So I'm going to see friends or family, and so I do I do a lot of that. What I also do is I work with the different brands and I do speaking engagements. So when I do those, they usually pay for the entire trip, which includes the hotels and the flights themselves. And what I try to do is if I can, I try to fly a different airline or try to fly. A, a, sometimes I have an influence. I say, hey, as long as I fly on a KLM 787, I'm happy, or something like that. And usually they can they can work that in. Sometimes they can't, and that's fine too. I make sure that I sign up with the with the frequent flyer programs. And people say that the airlines are cheating with the frequent flyer programs, but yeah, it's changing, but you don't really have any control over that. So what you really should do is try to get some type of uh, credit card that every penny that you spend, you get a mile or a point for it. Because that point does add up. If you don't do the, if you can't quote unquote afford a credit card, then you can all you can still find cheap fares. Like for example, if you're going to cross the Atlantic, you can get from the U.S. to Europe for about four hundred and eighty dollars anytime, because those fares are always out there. You just have to know how to search them. I use Google Flights, and so that helps me to find. You can just say, I want to go from Houston and don't put the destination and it'll give you a whole bunch of places that you can go to. And so a lot of my trips are funded by me because I want to work with different travel brands, but there's always sometimes a lot of restrictions. And as a travel influencer, I think is what they're calling us now, a lot of the brands, they don't really want to pay you to come to their destination. They just want to give you, quote unquote, a free trip. So if they give you a free trip in their mind, then I take that opportunity and go, okay, great. It's a new country. It's a new airline. And I can write airline review about it, or I can write, get information for my blog. Mm -hmm. And then that information from my blog brings readers to the blogs. And the more readers that come to the blog, the more advertising revenue I get from the blog. So instead of getting paid for the trip up front, I get paid for the trip in the back end. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that sort of explains it. I can imagine it's kind of an ongoing, constant travel hack for you. You're looking for events to speak at, you're looking for opportunities to get more points, and you've no doubt become an absolute guru at uh, figuring out just how to keep doing this. And it must be fun for you, too, to look at, oh, where could I go next and how can I make it work? Which leads me to the next question, which I think most of the audience will, will really care about. So as you know, I teach this laptop lifestyle idea and I'm a traveler, not quite to the extent you are. I do like to stay in one place for a while, not bounce on a plane straight away. But everyone listening in, we all are interested in the same idea, running a business, you know, possibly traveling to many places every year or even just living somewhere differently to where we are now. 
Can you maybe give us your your best advice beyond what you've just already provided with, you know, points and things with credit mm-hmm. cards on, let's just say, you know, not to travel constantly, but let's say we do want to open our eyes to opportunities to travel at much better rates. I think a lot of people just, you know, open up whatever, Skyscanner, Kayak, Expedia, look up flights and just get whatever's in front of them. Yet they hear about these travel hackers, you being one of them, who seem to get more frequent business class than normal or $100 flights constantly. Like it's almost like you said earlier, you seem to always be able to find a deal. How do you do that? Are there secret websites? Are there secret people you go to? Is there kind of like a, you know, behind the the scenes club that we need to be a member of? What's going on to get these <laughs> these deals? So there, there are a number of websites out there that, that you can use. The number one thing though is to be flexible. And I guess I could, so first sign up for all the newsletters that all the airlines have. And what will happen is they actually target you. So if you go to say like the Air New Zealand, I found an Air New Zealand flight, and as a geek, I always want to fly something called Fifth Freedom. So this is where an airline flies from country A to country B, but that airline is not from either of those countries. And an example is Air New Zealand. They fly from Los Angeles to London, but they're actually a New Zealand-based company, and so they have fares. So you can actually buy a ticket between Los Angeles and London. And so I was looking around, and I was like, I need to get to London. How can I find a really good fare? And it was four and four hundred and eighty-one dollars a really good fare for for that market. And they were having a sale. And airlines they normally have sales just at, like at this time of the year they'll have a sale because they want to fill the flights before between now and June. Because summer travel they've already gotten t- that taken care of. The fares are high because you have to go. But between now and June they want to fill the flights. So you can find some really good fares and you can get them straight from the airline website. So I went to, I was looking and I saw something came up on Facebook and I go, oh, $481 to, to London. I looked at it. The dates actually work out for me because I have a conference in Berlin and I was going to be in London. So I did the ticket actually backwards. I did London to LA and then a round trip. So I just flew one portion last week and I'm going to fly the next portion this coming Saturday. So then I go, okay, great. I'm in London. I need to get to Berlin. So then I looked it up and I saw, and, and this took me a while, like at least two, three hours and about a day for two days, just trying to find routes. And then I found another flight was on Air Baltic. Now, Air Baltic, you probably never heard of Air Baltic, but they're based in Riga, Latvia, and they've just gotten a new airplane called the A220, which for you readers probably like, I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> but um, as an aviation geek, I found that and I'm like, oh, great, I'm going to take that fare. So the fare was, uh, is, I think it's like 40, it's one way, it's just like 44 euros. Actually, 44 pounds, I think is what the ticket is. From where to where? From London to Riga or London to Berlin? London to Riga to yeah. Berlin. Okay. And then, so you can get those fares out there. I'd wanted to go to Liechtenstein. So while I was in London, I found a good fare in EasyJet, and I think it was like 20, 27 pounds. It was on a Tuesday. So basically, don't, and I found it on Google Flights, don't restrict yourself to a particular date and a particular airline. So if you go to Google Flights, you can go, like I, I did, I was trying to get to, it wasn't Zurich, it was, well, I think I just put Liechtenstein in. Liechtenstein does not have its own airport, but what Google will do, it'll tell you who's close by, 
Or if you grab a map, you can see which airports or which countries are close by. And then you try them. So if I did London to Zurich, that's really expensive. You're talking like two, three hundred pounds just for a one way ticket because that's a business market. But if I did London to Friedrichshaven, (laughs) (laughs) exactly, it's really hard to say, right? Uh, And how did I find it? I looked on the map and I go, oh, there's Friedrichshaven right there. (laughs) (laughs) So you see, you need to have a little geography sense, look on the map. And then what I did is, okay, well, how do I get from Friedrichshaven to Liechtenstein? Oh, there's a bus. And Google Maps is really good. Between Google Flights and Google Maps, those two are the key things that I use. And I also use, um, you can use Momondo because Momondo can give you some really good itineraries. Now, there's one that I don't really like, but I have a friend who swears by it. It's called Skiplag. And Skiplag, so this is the dark side of the industry. Skiplag will show you fares to cities. So in, in, in the airline industry, there's something called hidden, hidden cities. Now, it's called that by the users that say that. So the idea behind that is if I want to fly, and I see this all the time, and it's really terrible how the airlines do it, but they do anyway. So if I want to fly from, say, New York to Atlanta, it's like $200. But if I want to fly from New York to Athens, Georgia, which goes through Atlanta, it's like $50. And they do that because they're trying to maximize the route that people fly the most. Not many people want to go to Athens, Georgia, but lots of people want to go to Atlanta. So because lots of people want to go to Atlanta, you pay more for that. So what this website does, it shows you those routings. Now, the airlines don't like you to do it because actually Lufthansa is suing a passenger at the moment for doing that. Because they're like, well, your intention was never to go to City C you really wanted to go to City B, and we knew that's what you wanted to do, and so we're going to sue you for it. Wow. So I don't, I don't recommend people doing that because if, if that lawsuit goes out, you're hosed. <laughs> this seems so strange to me, though. Like I actually uh, used a service that you probably know very well, FlightFox, several mm-hmm. years ago. And essentially, that's where you hire you hire a Kerwin, basically, who then does all the <laughs> hacking for you to find these flight options. Now, I did it because I was looking specifically to get a better business class flight to get from Australia to San Francisco via Asia. And I knew where I was going. I wanted to go to Hong Kong and Japan and then end up in San Francisco, leaving from a city, probably Sydney, in Australia. And uh, I told them that, and I, obviously you, you'd say your, whatever you have in terms of advantages, whether you might have some points you can spend or some kind of loyalty for something, and then they go and hack. So they do what Curran does and look up all these things, and they came back with very much what you just talked about, a flight that was going to Korea via Tokyo. So, no, it was, I think it was Taiwan via Tokyo. Anyway, whatever the case may be, it would get me to where I wanted to go, but I just would not fly the last leg. Yet right. it was like $2,000 cheaper than flying just to the city. So rather than flying, I could buy a ticket to two cities for $2,000 less than one city. I was like, this makes no sense because I'm basically paying less for more petrol, more seats, more what should cost me more. Yet it's a travel hack. 
And then yet you're saying the airlines don't want you to do that because then you're not using the second flight, which messes up their system, I'm assuming, right? That's why they don't want you to do that. So it's, it just seems like there's an inefficiency here that's clearly that needs to be changed so that, you know, we're actually getting the best deal without having to do these convoluted flight plans that we only fly half of, you know? Exactly. And the thing is that now with the systems, uh, the systems being uh, a little more sophisticated, the airlines can actually tell that's, that what, that's what you did. And there is something in the terms and condition that says you, you're not allowed to do it. And uh, also, if you're a frequent flyer, I can pull your frequent flyer membership. Because there was actually a guy who did that a few years ago. And the, he's actually a religious person. And so no one expected him to do that. Well, but the airlines looked at all his travels and they're like, well, you're taking advantage of the system and you're violating your frequent flyer contract, so we're terminating you. And they did. <laughs> so so that, kind of, that kind of stuff does happen. But I don't recommend people to do it because actually if you check a bag, it won't work. But it is out there. There's also the other thing that people call mistake fares. Now, as an excellent employee, mistake fares, I was the person at the airline that would authorize these whenever they called them in. And I know how it affects the airline's bottom line. So I don't take advantage of the mistake fares. But those are fares where I think Cathay Pacific just had one recently. I, yeah, I heard about it. Yeah. And, and there's been many of them. But what happens that airlines will come back and they're like, nope, we're not honoring it. Kenya Airways had one just recently. It went from New York. They just launched New York to Nairobi. And if you bought a ticket on Delta, you got the incorrect fare. But if you bought it in Kenya Airways, you got the correct fare. It was like between, it was 173 on Delta or something like that and 700 and something on Kenya. And so Delta's like, we're not honor it. And a lot of people bought it and then they were upset about it. So if you buy these mistake fares, just know that the airline can come back and say, nope, we're not doing it. Usually they'll tell you within 48 to 72 hours if they're going to honor it or not. And there's been a lot of case about that. But you don't really have to do all that. You can find, just use Google Flights, use Momondo, and you can find some very, very good flights. Be flexible. Don't always buy the cheapest fare. And I say that because sometimes just for, they have something called basic economy now. And I'm sorry, I'm getting excited. With basic economy, you fly the same leg that you would normally, everything is the same except you probably don't get frequent flyer points. You don't get to pick your seat until you check in. So if you're traveling with somebody else, that's not good because you won't be able to sit together. Mm. But the difference sometimes is $30 between that fare and the other fare that gives you everything else, including checking your bag. So always look at what you're buying. Don't always buy the lowest fare. Read everything. And, uh, and then you could like my Riga flight. I took it, but my carry-on is eight kilos. And my bag, when I read it the last time, was 15. So now I have to think, okay, great. What can I not take? Mm. I don't like arguing with the agents. And so that when I fly Ryanair, I just pay the 20 or $30 or whatever it is for my bag. Because the fear was like $10. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I'm okay with that. And I'm not going to argue with an agent over my bag. Because it's not the agent's fault. They're just doing the job that yeah. the airline is paying them for. I do notice that certainly in the last sort of, I don't know, maybe the internet era, the whole idea of selling a cheap flight, but stripping away the things like your check-in bags, food, travel on bags, suddenly that becomes an added fee and you don't realize, yeah, you see in the search results, oh, it's only a $100 flight, 
but it's actually a $250 flight when you add on luggage and food and everything that you might normally have got previously with a, a normal ticket. So it certainly changed the dynamic, especially with the discount airlines nowadays. But so uh, just to summarize then, Kerwin, Momondo is your sort of search engine of choice for flights combined with Google, you know, Google Maps, Google Flights. So those three resources would be where you'd spend most of your time searching to try and construct flights and you don't really need to have any clever insight it's just a case of playing with the days and the destination combination of of where you're going and what airlines and and what airport you're flying into to figure this out now is that a big job because obviously you know you're doing this uh, no doubt every single week because you're constantly flying so how much of your time do you think you spend just hacking these flights jeez <laughs> Quite a bit. I'd probably say maybe about 25% of my time when I think about it. Because I'm a last minute, I'm a, I'm a last minute shopper. So yeah, probably about 25 minutes. Oh, and, and one thing about the, those flights too is, um, so I got really, 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 and I say really, really, really lucky recently. Because I was in New York and I was trying to get to Houston. The fare to Houston was 270 something dollars, but the fare to Dallas was $56. And so I go, well, I'm going to Dallas. I'll take a Greyhound for $22. I'm still ahead. Mm-hmm. So then I'm Delta Medallion. Actually, I had done a status match, which means that you have one elite status from one airline and you tell the other airline, hey, can you match it for me? And they do. And they give you like 90 days to fly them to keep it. And if you've done whatever they tell you during 90 days and you get like the gold status. Gold status on any airline is good because it means you can use the lounges and you can get upgrades. So at the time I was on Delta and I got, I scored, oh, I get to the airport and the flight to Dallas is, my flight to Dallas is delayed. Delayed so much that I was going to miss my Greyhound bus (laughs) from Dallas to Houston. So I said to, to the airline, which was Delta, and I said, hey, can I go to Houston instead? Because the flight is delayed, I'm going to miss my flight. And the guy's like, well, Houston is after an alternate for Dallas. And he goes, yeah, we'll do it because the flight's delayed. So now I get to go to Houston. <laughs> now, I paid $27 for my Greyhound ticket. But I'm like, that's still a good deal because when you add a 20-something plus 56, the best part of it is I got upgraded to first class because of my status. <laughs> it sounds to me like the most important thing is flexibility because you don't know when these opportunities are going to pop up where, yeah, flight's delayed. Can I go here instead? Can I get upgraded? I'm going to miss this or I'm going to miss that. So it, you kind of have to play by ear to make it work. But no, I do appreciate the insight. I can see, Kerwin, <laughs> this is your life every week, right? So, <laughs> I want to to you before you get before you, uh, the next question is, um, I have a very, I was thinking about this recently, and I have a very amazing network of friends worldwide. And these are people who I've known for a long time. And, you know, I've met them either from work or from just, you know, social circumstances. And so a lot of times, instead of doing a hotel in a particular city, I can actually stay with my my friends. So I save quite a bit of money with that. And what I've realized is that, and we all have this, we all have a lot of friends some of our friends just need someone to come by and hang out with them for a little while, especially our single friends. And what I try not to do is overstay my welcome. So I normally just stay maybe for a week or something. If I have more than one person in one city, I'll go stay with different people. And that has helped tremendously. 
Yeah, that's a that's a hack in itself, right? Make more friends, get better accommodation rates. So. <laughs> it, 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 didn't, it, it didn't happen. Like, I didn't plan it. It just kind of happened. Because when I first left the job, my friends were like, what are you going to do? I go, I don't know. And one friend was like, why don't you come sit with me for a while? And so I did. And then all my friends kept calling me. I'm like, well, how come you didn't stay with me? I know you longer. <laughs> and so I had to actually start writing stuff down. <laughs> uh, maybe men- friendship hacking might be the, the next thing. Here. <laughs> For everything we're talking about, Karen, is there a resource that you, know, you have out there in particular, a book or just your blog? Where should we go? Okay, so passriver.com is the one that's uh, tailored to airline stuff. But the information that's on there is actually a lot of destination information, which means like, you know, what to do when you go to a particular city. So anyone can use that. Cruisingaltitude.com is more geared about, and there's no G in cruising altitude. And for some reason, everyone thinks it's about cruises, but it's about flying. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I know, right? Because I came up with a name because the captain always says, you know, you've breached your cruising altitude. Yeah, sit back, relax, and enjoy the flight. So that's where that came from. And that one just taught, it's, it's a lot of etiquettes. It's like, you know, should I recline my seat? When I get on a flight, if I'm traveling with two people, should I book two seats next to each other? Or should I book window on an island in the middle open? Things like that. Mm. And it also gives you flight reviews so you can find out what was my experience like on a particular flight. And one of the big things that a lot of people don't know, uh, well, some people do, is stopovers. So I have on Cruising Altitude, if you go to cruisingaltitude.com slash stopovers, there's a whole piece about how you can, so for example, if you go into Singapore, Singapore, you can stay a day or two and they will facilitate it. If you go, say, Nairobi, you're connecting through Nairobi, they will actually pick you up, take you through immigration and custom, take you on a mini safari and take you back to the airport. And you don't have to pay for all that. Wow. So uh, Etihad, if you fly through Abu Dhabi, they will actually give you hotel nights based on which class of service you're flying. So there's a whole bunch of things like that that can actually help you see, see to have two vacations in one or something like that. Mm. So that's has that. And uh, from, if you go to passfather.com slash 89 things, that will take you to the newest book, which although it is geared for airline employees, but it is still 89 things that you can do as a traveler. I'm actually thinking of releasing an, an, another version of that that will be geared to just non-airline staff. Mm, it's a good idea. I also recommend you follow Curran on social, Instagram in particular. We'll put the links, obviously, with this blog post for this podcast so you can find everything Curran's talked about and his social media. Because, yeah, that I see, I mean, most of the time I think, Curran, I see you taking photos of the planes and you <laughs> sitting in the planes than necessarily where you actually are. But it is, it is uh, inspiring to see. Uh, the constant flying around. Do you intend to do this forever? Like, what's the future hold for you, Kerwin? You know, it's weird. I was thinking about that the other day. And let me clarify too. I, I asked this because I know part of me has been curious. You know, having a family, if you're on a plane constantly, you know, you, you get to see your friends maybe one week a year because then you're off to see another friend in another city. So I always wondered whether the social and family aspect of this, how much of an impact it has on your life? Like, cause you're very coming and going. So how does that feel? I feel it a bit too when I travel, you know, like uh, I, I see someone and then I'm off again. So how does, how does that impact you? The social side, it, you're, you're right. It, it is. Um, so, and this always happened from a, from a day I worked for an airline, but my family slash social circle is accustomed to it. They know that whenever they see me, they will only see me for a little time. 
And because I can be back again next week. My mother is really mad about it. So she's like, well, <laughs> if you're only going to be here for a day, why are you bothering? <laughs> and I go, well, you know, because I want to see you. And so I try to work the family side of it into there. A lot of the family stuff you don't see me talk about in, on social media. So I'll just say, hey, and I'm going to here. And then that's it. Oh, I don't tell you. I, I don't tell you anything about the social side. But I, I do have downtime when I do go see friends and family from time to time. And um, like in next month, I'm going to go see my aunt because she's mad at me and I haven't seen her in a long time. So I'm going to go spend, spend some time with her. So, yeah, but, but the social side of things as you travel is really difficult. I don't see an end to like not traveling. I think last summer I kind of didn't go in, didn't go anywhere much because I had wanted to get the blog to a position where the SEO was right. The SEO was terrible. So the ad revenue was just not working. And so I, I spent some time to really get that going and hone that and hone that side of it and it's it's working now i need to do some more stuff to it but no i think i'm always going to be traveling do you plan to die on an airplane not from it crashing just because you happen to be on it <laughs> oh, well, oh you see you know what's weird so you mentioned that i used to have this dream on a plane and it's always that the airplane is is, is crashing but like the wings would get sheared off and as soon as the wing gets sheared off i'd wake up so, yeah, it's kind of weird, but, you know, if, if I got I'm okay with death. I guess I've had enough experience like that, you know, from family members and friends that I have come to terms with that. And if it happens, it happens. It drives my mother nuts whenever I tell her that. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's it's weird to say it, but it's life. And we're not we're not going to be here forever. We just have to have a really good time while we're here. Awesome, Kerwin. You are very inspirational when it comes to anyone who has a fear of flying. I think that they should look to you just just follow you for that reason because you're constantly on planes. So it, it makes you normalize it. That's what's cool about that. And anyone who's into flying more frequently just by getting better deals, even doing a, a Kerwin hack, landing in a city and then flying somewhere on a red eye so you don't have to, you know, or, or like you said earlier with your very ever first hack, landing on a weekend, spending the, the day, don't sleep and then leave the next morning on the early morning flight. You know, you can, you can make these quick holidays work for you, for those who are inclined to do that kind of mad dash travel. So it's all possible. <laughs> Anything else you want to throw in, Curran, before I wrap it up? I think one, I, I, you know, just thinking about why I really travel is that I, I love people and I realize that we, we're all so different, but then we're all so the same. Because you go to a place and like typically the women normally take care of the children. It, it's just how it is. Except in Romania, there was like a Saturday when I went out and all the dads were out to the children. And when I asked my guy, she's like, oh yeah, on Saturdays, the guys take care of the children and the women are home relaxing. So, uh, which is quite interesting. But I think we're all we're all the same. And if we can just tell ourselves that and just, just try to be a little more accepting of each other, because although we're all different, we're really all the same and are looking for the same things in life, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, that's one thing you really notice when you travel. Uh, the more you go, the more everything seems similar. So yeah, I'm sure you're seeing that more than most people, Kerwin. Thank you for taking the time to share your story. Keep traveling. I'll keep watching you. And uh, yeah, good luck with spreading the travel gospel as well. So uh, yeah, thank you. 
Thank you, Yara. I really appreciate it. And by the way, you are a big fan of mine, so thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Yaro's podcast. For more episodes, visit yaro.blog and subscribe on iTunes or Google.